listeners, welcome to the third episode of Season 2 of The Blue Radio. In this episode, I will be broadcasting my interview with Dr. Hilit Kletter, a clinical associate professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences of Stanford School of Medicine. Her team focuses on prevention and early intervention for youth experiencing adversity, trauma, and stress. She also directs the Stress and Resilience Clinic that provides assessment and treatment to youth and their families who have been impacted by a wide range of traumatic experiences, including child abuse. Her team has also developed a treatment for children who have experienced chronic trauma. I learned a lot talking to her, and it was a unique opportunity to ask about what the perpetrators think and feel because, as I mentioned earlier, she works with children and their families. And we also talked about debunking some popular myths that have been circulating in social media about child abuse. The first question I asked her was about the early intervention that she works on. So I asked her what prompts her to make this early intervention? What are the tell signs that makes her take action? I think some important things to remember is, um, first of all, not to jump to conclusions that if you are seeing any signs that it immediately is an indication of um, abuse or maltreatment. It's really important we look at, first of all, the frequency. So for example, you know, a child may occasionally have nightmares here and there, and that's pretty normal. So that in and of itself wouldn't necessarily be an indication. We're looking for persistent changes in behavior and mood. So if a child is having nightmares pretty much you know, on a consistent basis for a week or more, then there would be concern. And we're looking for a number of symptoms, not just one, you know, change in just one thing. So that's um, one thing to be aware of. The other thing is that um, we're looking at how this is impacting the child's functioning. Is it causing significant emotional distress? And is it also getting in the way of their ability to do the things that they need to do? So for example, going to school, is it impacting um, relationships or friendships? Is it getting in the way of um, home life? Um, and third, it's important to ask yourselves if you are noticing any signs, could they be explained by anything else that might be going on with the child? For example, are there any other stressors? And common things that um, might impact uh, children would be things like if a parent is traveling for work for an extended period and is absent from the home or the birth of a sibling or um, a move or family members sick, right? Those things we would expect would have an impact on the child and, and they might temporarily be um, having signs or changes in, in their behavior and mood, but that necess wouldn't necessarily be an indication that something serious is going on. So we look for all those things. Um, having said that, there are some uh, signs that we notice that could be indicative of um, a child having experienced trauma. And um, really what we're looking for is a marked change in the child's mood. So something that's very different from how they typically present. Um, for example, a child might appear more sad or withdrawn or quiet and just not 
seem to be interested in the things that they used to enjoy, not really wanting to, to engage in much of uh, anything. Or a child might become more irritable and angry and snap at any little thing and, and seem like they're reacting to you know, the slightest things. Or they might be more anxious and fearful in general and just worried about many, many things. So that would be one sign. You mentioned change. So what if a child has been abused from the beginning, from, from whenever the child can remember, like all, all he or she knows is abuse. So um, how about that? So, so um, usually there will be a distinct shift in, in either um, their affect or their behaviors. And that's really what we're looking for. And uh, so you say we, and you are a professional and your team are also a group of professionals, but how about for uh, like a person like me, I'm, I'm not just a psychologist and um, I'm not, uh, like I'm not a, a professionally trained to work with children, like a teacher or an educator, things like that. How about the other people? Uh, what signs should they look out for not to like diagnose a child uh, or label them as being a child abuse victim but you know just to pay more attention and uh given a chance listen to the child you know you know just to activate the attention what signs should we as normal people not professionals look out for yeah i think it's important to educate yourself and, and be aware of what might be the signs and some uh, things that you might notice is if the child is um having difficulty paying attention or concentrating there might be change in their uh academic functioning at school, that they're not able to get assignments done or uh, not turning in homework or their grades are starting to decline or um, they might be unexplained absences, frequent unexplained absences, or they might even, uh, when they're attending school activities, be reluctant to go home. So that might be a sign. If they're starting to uh, be avoidant of certain people or places, that might be an indication. Um, if they have changes, um, they seem just really, really tired or fatigued, lacking energy or motivation, and any changes in their sleep or feeding or um, eating, those would be signs. It could come out in their play um, children, especially young children, make sense of what's happening around them through play. And um, if you're noticing that there are unusual themes, they might actually act out their abuse in the play. And it tends to be repetitive and really distressing for the child. So for example, a child might be playing with dolls and the doll is being bad and getting hit, right? So that might be an indication that, that something's going on. Um, other other uh, signs might be if all of a sudden they, they used to be pretty social and all of a sudden they're not really interested in being around friends or doing any activities and you notice them, for example, at school standing on the side. Yeah, Dr. Claire, when you talk about child abuse, unfortunately, the stereotype that comes into all of our minds is like, you know what the movies show that usually the child who's being abused is being raised in a family that like there are eight kids in one house and the house is very small, very dirty. It's just like family is not educated. But as you have experience working with um, children uh, exposed to this type of adversity, 
um, what was it like? How often do you encounter kids from higher socioeconomic status and educated families? And what is it like uh, for them uh, versus people who are from a lower socioeconomic status? Is it more difficult for them to speak up because, you know, to disrespect the honor of the family or things like that or not? So it's a myth that uh, child abuse or trauma happens only to certain uh, individuals, to certain uh, parts of society. For example, those that are poor or, you know, only those that come from certain cultures or certain uh, geographic regions. It's prevalent across all levels of society. And we really see that it's, it's difficult for everyone to talk about it. There's a lot of stigma there's also a notion that kids just by virtue of being kids somehow are protected, like they'll outgrow it, they'll forget, they don't remember, maybe it doesn't impact them. We know that's absolutely not true. Kids are one of the most vulnerable groups actually to both being exposed to um, traumatic events as well as um, developing symptoms just by virtue of essentially being dependent upon their needs on, on adults for, for just about everything and also not necessarily having the full cognitive capacity to make sense of um, these experiences. Right, so you're saying that uh, you've seen it across all of the socioeconomic uh, gradient. And, you know, in all of the interviews I've had with professionals and also with survivors, of course, we focused on the, uh, on the survivor victim. But um, since you have worked with families and like in case of recovery, I'm curious, um, what are some interesting findings that you had when you talked to the person who was abusing the child? What was, like, what was their logic? What, what, what did they say? How did they feel about this? Uh, what was happening? So, so actually when we're doing treatment, we're very careful on whether or not we do include the um, perpetrator in treatment um, because a lot of times they will deny that the abuse was taking place. And in that case, we don't want to re-traumatize the child. Um, sometimes they justify it that this is a means of discipline or the child was acting out, being bad, that they deserved it. Um, a, a lot of times they don't have an explanation because they don't see it as abuse. Like they think they think this is normal or justified behavior. They're in, they're in denial that it even had any impact on the child. And when you work with them, do they uh, like eventually um, come to the uh, belief that it's wrong, or do they just give up, or you know? It, it's variable. I've had um, some caregivers that through um, providing them with education about what trauma is and what the symptoms look like will eventually come around. They may start out blaming the child or describing the child as being manipulative or a liar or that sort of thing um, as an explanation to why the child is having the behaviors. And when they get the information, they start understanding that this is really a trauma reaction um, and, and are able to own um, with other individuals that I've worked with. Even when you do provide them with that information, they really still are, are not able to uh, provide validation for the child or to even admit that abuse has happened. Right. 
in uh, about the perpetrators, you know, there's this uh, things being circulated on social media for like general knowledge that um, there's this image of a father hitting his son and then his son uh, walking around the table, becoming a grown up and hitting his own son. Is it always the case? Is it always the fact that the perpetrator was also abused as a child or do you often see cases that this didn't happen? No, it definitely heightens the risk that if somebody was abused as a child, they may grow up to be a perpetrator themselves. But again, this is one of those myths, just like we hear on the news with uh, shootings, right, that, oh, they must have a mental health condition or PTSD or something. Most individuals with mental health or most individuals that have been abused as a child will not grow up to become perpetrators or do bad things. Well, uh, I mean, this makes much more sense to me because when I talk to uh, survivors throughout my podcast, their views regarding children and their views regarding people were much more empathic than a lot of people. I'm not saying that this is always the case, but it was kind of not sitting right with me that a person uh, who knows how bad this feels goes on to abuse their child. But you're saying that it's not a it's not a given. It's not a common thing. There's this image, we see it in the media, we see it in movies, right? That like, because you've been abused, it must mean you're going to grow up and be a certain way. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that that's not common. Right. And when uh, the survivors do grow up, are there any behaviors that, um, just broadly defined, any uh, class of behaviors that are more common in child abuse survivors rather than uh, people who have not gone through this experience? Yeah, you might notice um, a range of just feeling kind of out of it. And, and it can go from feeling detached or not really there or dazed to forgetfulness or even having a, a sense of a loss of time that like um, you're going throughout your day and all of a sudden you're noticing like, oh, it's 5 p.m. and oh, where, where did all that time go? What, what happened in all that time? Or even feeling out of control. Um, a lot of times in adults that have been abused as children may have instability in relationships. They might be just in general, more impatient with uh, people they might have difficulty uh, maintaining friendships, getting into frequent arguments and, and fights with others. Um, they might have difficulty having a romantic relationship and they may vacillate from on the one hand, idealizing um, others and relationships. And then on the other side, demonizing them, kind of viewing them as really horrible or you know, out there to get them. Um, and that's a common experience um, because often individuals that have experienced abuse are kind of very wary of their environment and are constantly scanning, expecting like, when is the next bad thing that's going to happen to me? And are still in threat mode. So even um, benign behaviors by other people may be interpreted as a threat. They usually might tend to experience more intense feelings and have great difficulty controlling them. Um, they may have a lot of unexplained and irrational guilt, shame, hatred towards themselves. Substance use is really co uh, common, trying to you know, avoid the pain or just numb all feelings. 
And another thing uh, we notice is just constantly being on high alert, being on like the lookout for danger. Wow, uh, that actually, uh, that, that's a uh, good amount of information because uh, I've seen this in uh, people who I've talked to, but just gather this is how, uh, all of this gathered all together. And the fact of uh, that, how much it makes sense, because um, when you say that they're on high alert, uh, well, you know, maybe it's, I don't know, is, is this a defense mechanism? Um, basically, we can think of um, trauma as an injury to the normal stress response. So what happens is stress is something all of us need in our lives. It's actually good for us to a certain extent. It helps us learn to adapt and cope, right? And it motivates us to get things done. But when we're talking about something like child abuse, it's at the extreme level of stress that um, it's too much. It exceeds the individual's coping capacity. And when that happens, the fight or flight response, our body's natural survival mechanism that gets automatically activated when we are in danger, stays in the stuck position. It's like, think of a light switch that you can't turn off. Mm -hmm. And now, because the individual has experienced this abuse, they're hypersensitized to that normal stress response so that they're continuously getting signals to their brain for that fight or flight system to be turned on in situations when there's no actual threat, but because they had a real threat in the past, they're continuing to experience it as if it's happening in the moment. Right. So when you were talking about the work you do, you mentioned in one of your uh, projects, you mentioned stress and resilience. So this word uh, kind of reminds me of, again, a sort of maybe um, a statement that is not very much backed up by knowledge, but it's circulated uh, throughout the society that people who've gone through adversity in their childhood, uh, they become more resilient. Or some people say the exact opposite. They say that they have like mm, more, they're more sensitive. So um, what is your opinion? Resilience is um, something that can be taught. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily expect someone that's been through trauma or child abuse that that should be that outcome. And um, there's also a lot of differing opinions on how we define resilience, right? Like what is the outcome, whether it's that the child is functioning okay or doesn't have any symptoms or, or whether it's in terms of um, their school functioning or, or whatnot. But I think of resilience as the process of that you're engaging in at any given time, you be more, may be more or less resilient. It's dynamic, right? It, it, um, and there's many different domains that go under resilience. And it's really the process of the individual trying to adapt to whatever is happening. And um, with trauma, we would expect that it would impair an individual's um, resilience because it's really a level of stress that is beyond what any average person would be able to handle. It exceeds both their kind of biological as well as psychological resources. However, um, what we aim to do with um, the treatment interventions that exist with trauma is to enhance and build up that resilience again by teaching of coping skills 
and helping the individual process the traumatic experiences to basically teach that fight or flight response that it doesn't need to be uh, continuously activated and to help the individual know what to do in times when that does happen and how to respond. Can you explain that further? So how does this work? Uh, what type of strategies do you uh, teach them? Yeah, so um, there, there are many different um, trauma-focused interventions out there, and most of them have similar components of what we know should go into trauma treatment. Usually the first phase is um, helping them develop coping skills. And so we might teach them things like uh, breathing techniques or muscle relaxation, guided imagery, which is imagining um, creating a picture of something in your mind in detail. Um, mindfulness exercises, so different coping skills that get at um, how to manage emotions and thoughts and physiological reactions and behaviors in, in response to um, the traumatic experience. And the idea is that because you've had this really stressful experience, you've developed certain patterns in each of those corners and the coping skills can help you manage that. Basically, we can't avoid fight or flight being activated. And usually that happens in response to what we call trauma cues or reminders, things that are neutral in the environment that become associated with the um, trauma that cause us to uh, react in the same way. So for example, a child that grew up in a household where there was constant yelling might be reactive to just sitting in the classroom if the teacher is raising her voice or you know just benignly yelling at the class to be quiet the child might react and go into that trauma mode again so um, part of what treatment does is helps the child first learn the coping skills then we um, do exposure to the actual traumatic experiences by having the child talk about the experiences because we know that trauma gets encoded in the most primitive part of the brain and it keeps it active as if the child is still experiencing it in, in the present. And so the idea is by talking about it, it helps them process it in a different way and bring all the pieces together because a lot of times um, trauma memories also aren't integrated with our other experiences and all the bits and pieces are not a coherent whole. You might have, you know, I'm feeling this way, but I have no idea why. And so um, talking about it, we actually create a story with them for their experiences, helps link all of these um, corners to create an organized kind of coherent story for I had this experience, therefore I feel this way, or I think this way or develop these certain beliefs. I experience, you know, certain sensations in my body and I behave in a certain way. The next step after that would be exposure to the specific trauma reminders that we identify. Um, again, usually we can't completely eliminate or extinguish the response um, because that connection is so strong, but we can help the individual identify what the reminders are and then how they can utilize the coping skills in the moment when they are getting triggered. And the final stage is helping them consolidate and really develop a solid plan for what will you do in the future if something difficult happens again and do you know when and how to use your coping skills like what might you do if you tried something and it doesn't work or what if you tried everything and it doesn't work 
so that they really feel confident that they have a plan for how to uh, deal with future difficult situations. I understand. That's well. Thank you for explaining that. And uh, well, my last question is that uh, you talked about early intervention in families. So uh, if the inter is it that if the intervention is not early enough, uh, the family might not recover from that, or uh, just generally, um, do families ever go back to uh, wait, wait, like quote unquote normal um, way of feeling towards each other after abuse happens? Yes, uh, so for the first part of your question, it's always easier, the, the earlier you get a child into treatment, the better the chances are for, for recovery, especially because kids, their brain is still malleable. And the good news is, is that we can form new connections. And by teaching them these skills, we're, we're targeting the brain areas that we know are impacted by trauma. Um, the, the longer that time goes by, it may be difficult to change those behaviors. However, it's better to get help at any point versus not, not at all. Um, trauma is a condition that does not improve with time. A lot of uh, times people have the notion that time will heal. I'll, I'll just wait it and you know this will get better. It doesn't. Um, we know and we see it in a lot of adults that have been abused as children that the symptoms can go well into adolescence and adulthood and start impacting pretty much every domain of functioning, right? They start affecting social life. They start affecting um, one's ability to function in school or on the job. They affect uh, cognition. Um, and, and so it's important to get help no, no matter at what point. In terms of the second half of the question of do families ever really get back to normal, quote unquote, the simple answer is, is no, there is no cure for trauma symptoms. Um, it, it's not something that you ever get over. And what I tell the families that I work with is it's, it's you know, an experience that happened to you. It doesn't have to be the experience, like the defining point or, or um the way that you identify yourself that this is the only thing in, in your life. It's a part of your life. It's something that happened to you. And we work on, with them on learning with how to deal with it and move on. But the reality is that it, it never goes away because there's also these trauma reminders that come up in the environment that usually are still there. I understand. Well, I have no additional questions. So if there's anything you want to add uh, for our audience to know from survivors and people who are just generally curious about this issue, um, is there anything you would like to say? I mean, the biggest message I'd like to uh, give is that if you have been impacted by child abuse, that there is hope, there, there is help, and there's very effective interventions, and we know that they work. So the important thing is if that you are noticing that it's really affecting your life to, to get the help. We have now reached the end of this episode. Like all of my interviews, with professionals, here we also concluded that there's always hope, there's always a road to recovery. 
With that, I'm going to thank you for your attention and listening to this episode. Stay tuned for the next.